You turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6 this morning. And we're finally in a section that's mainly all practical application at this point. After all of that theological exposition of the first 12 chapters, he's finally given us something to chew on as far as what to take home. Uh, So with that being said, let's hear from God's Word uh, just those three verses. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe that you are our helper and our provider and our keeper, our refuge and our rock, as we've sung earlier this morning. We pray, Father, that the Word of God would bring us life and hope and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. As we sang again earlier, and as the disciples said, where else can we go? Oh, Lord, you alone have the words of life. Help us to meditate upon that word. Help us to receive that word today by faith. Help us to chew upon it, and Lord, to live by it through the wisdom that comes from above, from heaven, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there have been, for a few years now, a number of divorced couples in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who regularly now, uh, uh, each week, Uh, A number of them keep adding to the list who are celebrating the end of their failed marriages. But they're celebrating it in style, which really counts, right, in the end. Um, There's a a business in Albuquerque, New Mexico called Freedom Rings, Jewelry for the Divorced. Uh, If you haven't heard of it before, it was founded by a woman uh, whose name is Lynn Peters, who is a jeweler and a divorcee herself. She makes custom new jewelry out of old wedding rings. So in other words, it's a repurposing of uh, the wedding ring and the vows that went along with it. It, it actually is a, a ceremony, a, a ring-smashing ceremony that begins with uh, champagne and music, and then the ceremony, uh, the divorcees are actually renouncing their wedding vows. The MC says this, We will now release any remaining ties to your past, by transforming your ring into a token of your new beginning. Now take the hammer and repeat after me. With this swing, let freedom ring. And uh, apparently it gives quite a bit of people a sense of ending to their, their failed marriage in, in that sense. In another part of the country, uh, a newlywed couple was struggling to keep their marriage together. After only six months of, of being together since their wedding, uh, the reason was no mystery. They had... Uh, tied the knot, and immediately they had accumulated quite a bit of debt in student loan uh, debt. But then in addition to that, they continued to add up more and more consumer debt to where they had owed, by the time they were married six months, $180,000 in debt. Of course, they only were making about $60,000 a year in income. Uh, So when they maxed out all their credit cards, they began to ask for personal loans from their family members to continue to live up to their lifestyle. But the couple's financial future was so bleak and their commitment to one another was so shaky that they 
decided that uh, it was time to end the marriage before even the first year had passed. You know, we don't always associate marriage and money together, um, but surprisingly, the Scripture does it quite often. In fact, if you think about um, the Ten Commandments as it's listed for us twice, uh, first in Exodus 20, then later on in Deuteronomy 5, in both cases, after the command to not commit adultery comes the command not to steal, and then soon after, the command not to covet, and it actually brings those two things together that you're not to covet your neighbor's wife and also not to covet your neighbor's house and anything else of your neighbor's. There's a correlation between these two sins that all surround the concept of coveting what you don't have or what is not rightfully yours. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts these two sins together often. Uh, For instance, Colossians 3, 5, Paul says this, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and other evil desires along with covetousness, which is idolatry. Similarly, Ephesians 5, verse 3, Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So we always have this combining of these two sins together, the the desire for money and the desire for some other relationship that is not rightfully yours to show that there's a craving for something more than what God has provided. And that there's a lack of trust in what God uh, can do, and both for our good and for his glory. The author of Hebrews has already warned the brothers in a negative way in chapter 12, saying this, See to it, brothers, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So again, he, he, he pairs the concepts of sexual immorality and immediately this idea of covetousness, this idea of idolatry. They're always blending these two things together. But now in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews is, is presenting it from a more positive perspective instead of a negative. Instead of referring to that which you should not do, he's saying here's what you ought to do. So he's now speaking of the honor of marriage and speaking of the freedom of contentment as opposed to the sinfulness of that coveting and that sexual immorality. But but they're always paired together. So we have to remember whenever we get into these very short and brief commands that just says don't do this but do this, always know that there are two things that are, are driving these commands. First of all, it's, it's based upon the very character of God himself. If God is calling us to be faithful and honorable and full of contentment, it's because why? He is always faithful and honorable and content. So he's not asking us to do anything that he not already is and does. But then secondly, in addition to that, always know that the reason why these commands come at the end of the epistle instead of the beginning is so that you can see that these are driven from our salvation. Because God has saved us as his people, he now wants us to know the freedom and the wonder and the beauty of God's law to to, to live according to its wisdom that we couldn't do before because we hated God and wanted to go our own way. But now he has freed us to see the beauty and wisdom of the law and to live in a way that would be pleasing to him. And so God purposely has saved us as his people, again, not merely to punch our ticket into heaven, but so that now he can preserve for himself a peculiar people who are zealous for good works, who are zealous for the good things of God, who are zealous for the laws of God, and can put on display the glory of God, the love of God in a new society that God has called us together 
to be a part of as the church. So with that in mind, let's look at these two exhortations this morning concerning marriage and money, beginning in verse 4 with marriage. The author of Hebrews says this, first of all, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now we all know that marriage was instituted by God. It was created by God, designed by God. It was part of God's plan from the beginning, His idea at creation. It's His good provision out of all the things that were considered good in Genesis chapter 1. When we finally get to Genesis chapter 2, we see that for the first time something is not good, and what is not good is that man is all alone, and he has no one to be with him as his companion and his intimate friend. Uh, finally, Adam sees one who is well-suited for him that God has brought to him. God has instituted and designed this idea of marriage. And we know that in the marriage relationship, the highest form of love can be found through the intimacy, through that binding covenant that God has given unto us. And within that covenant, as Mark said earlier uh, very plainly, Within that covenant relationship, marriage and the intimacy of the sexual relationship is a beautiful and wonderful thing. But the minute you take it outside of that relationship and put it anywhere else at any other time, it becomes something horrible, something that is corrupted in every way that causes irreparable harm to both parties that they will deal with for the rest of their lives. It, it's always amazing to me, though, how we find a way as sinners to ruin God's good gifts. We will find a way in everything that God has provided that is good. We will sully it, we will pervert it, we will debauch it because of our rebellion against God, because of our desire to live our own life apart from Him. You know, it's, it, it's a shame that the human race has to have Leviticus chapter 18 written down for our sakes. If you, if you think about it, you go back and look at Leviticus chapter 18. It is so explicit in the, the, the types of commands that it gives when it has to say this. It can't just say avoid sexual immorality. Instead, it says this. It commands a man not to lie down with his sister. It commands a man not to lie down with his, his aunt or his aunt, depending on how you pronounce that. Not to lie down with his father's wife. Not to lie down with his son's wife. Not to lie down with his brother's wife or his neighbor's wife or with another man or with an animal. It has to say all of that. Why? Because we find a way to pervert the good gifts of God. It's a shame that we have to have that so explicit we, because otherwise we will find a way, well, he didn't say this. I can do that. No, he, he has to be so explicit because we find a way to d dishonor what God considers honorable. Whether that's through polygamy or the keeping of concubines as they did often in the Old Testament, whether it's through rape or prostitution or incest or sodomy or bestiality or a whole host of other things that we now label by letters, we will find a way to mess it up. But it's not just the libertines who devalue marriage. It's often the legalist as well. We find a way 
to make it less than what God originally created it to be. Uh, if you look at the early church, even what Paul is writing against and what many of these New Testament authors are, 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 are countering in their arguments, it's often because of the legalists and the ascetics who are against the concept of marriage as a whole because they consider it to be impure. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. He says, In the latter days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And you know what the teaching of demons he's talking about here? The forbidding of marriage. He says that's the teaching of demons. Because there, there are actually a number of heretical movements in the early church in which they're constantly saying that the body itself is evil. That anything done with the body is evil. and That only the soul alone is good somehow. That somehow God's good creation is now, imp- imp- it's not possible to salvage it. That you have to just do away with anything related to the body as a whole. And so as a result, marriage comes under attack very early on in the life of the church. We're constantly saying, well, you don't want to be married at all because that's impure. The, The marriage bed itself is impure. Perpetual virginity and celibacy is praised primarily because men and women can't find a way to enjoy what God has given. We find a way. To pervert it. Even a number of the early church fathers, uh, a lot of the people that we respect for their theology in a lot of other realms today, you're like, okay, this guy was a little crazy on some of these other issues. St. Augustine believed that marriage was a sacrament of the church as the Catholic Church does today, but he believed that everyone, if everyone stopped marrying and stopped having children, that that would be an admirable thing. For it would mean that the kingdom of God would return all the sooner and that this world would finally come to an end. So he's not forbidding marriage, but he's highly suggesting it. It's a good thing, he says. Tertullian, another early church father, said, Man, if he wishes to please God, must separate himself as much as possible from woman. Okay. He also believed that marital relations coarsened the body and the spirit and always dulled one's spiritual senses, averting them from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's dangerous teaching. It really is. Although he was married, he stressed that, here's what he said, happiness in marriage is rooted ultimately in misery. Seeing marriage as a state of bondage that can only be cured by celibacy in marriage. He's recommending celibacy in marriage, because he feels like if if there's any happiness in marriage at all, it's a result of the fall. It's all misery. It's not the way God intended it to be. One last one, St. Jerome, another early church father, advocated for celibacy and virginity as preferable alternatives to marriage, saying this, it's not disparaging wedlock to prefer virginity. No one can make a comparison between two things if one is good and the other is evil. Again, Highly suggestive. Of course, today, I don't think you have too many people in the church that are saying that. Uh, The reason why that original uh, culture did that is because many of them struggled with sexual impurity. They were surrounded by sexual sin in every culture in the Greek and Roman Empire. It was, if you think it's bad today, it was still worse then. We're going in that direction, 
But everywhere you went, there are prostitutes on every corner. There's sexual immorality in every way. Every temple sacrifice was associated with some sort of sexual sin. And so these men really struggled with this and didn't know what to do with it. So they go, well, let's just put it away altogether. Let's get rid of it because we can't handle this. Today, we have the opposite problem where literally there's no sense of trying to seek purity, but, but rather we don't want to even distinguish between good and evil anymore. We don't want to say as a culture, that, that there ought to be any restraint, but you ought to be able to find your self-realization, your self-actualization by just pursuing whatever possible version of sexual immorality that you can. I think I had shared with you before how wide my eyes were the day that I took my young family to Provincetown, Massachusetts to go on a whale-watching cruise and did not know, no one warned me in advance, that the, it is the unofficial capital of the LGBT movement. And all of a sudden, we were the only family in the entire town. Everyone else there is doing public acts of displays of affection, holding hands, kissing one another, always man and man, woman and woman. You're walking down the street, and there's some sort of drag queen parade going on, and I'm hearing... John Lennon's song, Imagine, not just in my head, but I'm hearing it played. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell, and that this is all we have. And then you go into the stores there, at the time at least. This was prior to um, homosexuality, homosexual marriage becoming legal in the United States. Every, every store that we went into, they would have anti-marriage t-shirts. And the most prominent one had a big circle on it with a line through it, that said breeders. So anti-breeders. So basically my family coming into town, we're breeders because we're populating the human race. This is what it was like then. They've changed it. They've cleaned up their image a little bit since then because people like me said something. Um, but that is what the world thinks of marriage today. You're just breeding more horrible people into this world, and, and we can't deal with that. And as a result... Um, we should just do away with marriage altogether. The problem is we're constantly diminishing marriage for other pursuits. I, I think what we're finding in the church today, and this is, this is what's surprising to me, and I'd mentioned to you in another sermon, I try, I try to be very clear what I'm saying this time, but there are some in every evangelical church today that are promoting the concept of singleness and celibacy, but only at the extent of diminishing marriage itself. In other words, they have brought a critique against the church for, they'll say, for idolizing marriage. I don't know if we've done that at all. I think, I'm sure there are some individuals that have. Um, it's okay to be single. It's okay to pursue a celibate life. There, no one is, is, is knocking that that I know of. Uh, but, but the problem is nowadays they're saying we focus way too much on marriage. We need to focus more on singleness now. Focus more on celibacy, especially in reference to the homosexual movement. Um, it, I, I think it's dangerous anytime you have to diminish one version in order to promote the other. Uh, if you want to encourage someone to, to live a celibate life, do that. But also promote marriage. Because it is what God has created from the very beginning. If you think about it, Jesus, when he performed his very first miracle, he didn't. He didn't raise anyone from the dead. He didn't heal a sick person. What did he do? He multiplied the wine at a wedding. Why is he at a wedding? Why is he wasting his time? 
People getting married because it is something he wants to celebrate. He has all of his disciples with him. They're seeing this miracle performed because he is the one who has designed marriage. He is the one who has created this institution and wants it to be honored, wants it to be praised, not to be diminished in any way. Marriage is to be celebrated and protected, not denigrated. But we live in a culture that's constantly dishonoring marriage. And so as a result, the author of Hebrews adds this, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, if there's one command that Paul continues to reiterate again and again and again in terms of sanctification, it is avoid sexual immorality. How many times does he say that? It's again and again and again, even when the Gentiles first are coming into the church and in the book of Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council meets to determine how do we allow these Gentiles to come into a Jewish church when they don't keep our, our holiness customs. They didn't make them follow all the ceremonial laws, but one of the first laws that they want them to follow is avoid sexual immorality because that is so prevalent in the culture that they were living in, he said, flee from it. Flee from sexual immorality. Every list of sins that Paul mentioned in terms of works of the flesh, sexual morality is almost always at the top of the list every single time because it so diminishes the honor of the marriage bed. And he, he constantly says, along with John and Peter and all the others, that those who practice this sin without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, because they're not only diminishing the honor of marriage, they're also destroying the society in which we live, because society cannot sustain itself if you attack marriage. But that's what we're doing over and over and over again. As a result, the Scripture says very plainly, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6, that the Lord will destroy such sinful cultures, just as He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He will destroy the whole world in reference to this because of the example of the ungodly. Uh, the Apostle John records for us the words of Jesus to the church of Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2, he says, he says this, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. Again, he's not saying that if someone has, has sinned and has, has made a, a poor decision that they can't be forgiven of. You can't be. You can be forgiven of any sin, any sexual sin. He's talking about those who have not repented and have no desire to repent of their sin. He says that they will be judged and they will be destroyed. Not a popular message today to preach. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear about God's judgment. They don't want to hear about fire and brimstone. But that's exactly what he's talking about in this passage, that those who do not repent of their sin will be judged by God because God himself honors marriage. Anyone who dishonors it comes under his wrath and condemnation. It's, it's his good gift that he has given, and yet we despise his good gifts. 
And anyone who does that and teaches others to do so will be judged. It's a fact. But the church of Christ is called to be a new society. A society that enjoys God's good gifts. That knows the proper context for them. That seeks to honor God through the institution of marriage. Through the faithful vows of a husband and wife that reflect the mystery of Christ and His love for the church. One of the sure signs of a strong Christian community is a community that honors marriage. That honors these vows that are made unto God. And and as we continue to do that, we have to promote that in a crooked and perverse generation that hates every aspect of it. So I want you to meditate upon that truth this week. Ask yourself, how do I honor or dishonor marriage? By my words, by my thoughts, by my actions. For married couples, it ought to be obvious that we ought to focus more on how to love one another and to promote the the, the love of Christ in our homes. For those who are not married, don't despise it. Don't belittle it. Don't disparage it because perhaps you had a bad example of it. Those who have not yet been married or don't want to be married or won't become married, don't disparage marriage. Um, I, I, I want to say this in closing with this first category. Uh, for those of you who especially are young people today because you're surrounded by a culture of pornography, I think the greatest way today that our culture disparages marriage is by the promotion of pornography. And every young man or young woman that gets sucked into that from a very young age, you're going to hurt your marriage. It's going to hurt and harm your relationship to your spouse. And you're only hurting yourself. It is not freedom. It is slavery. And if you think about that, you let this Scripture sink into your mind. Listen to what Mark read from Proverbs chapter 5. Every single time you see an image like that that's trying to lure you in, it's luring you to the very gates of hell. It is dishonorable to God. It is dishonorable to marriage. And to think in any other way is sin. Think about that as you're seeking to rid yourself of the idols of this world and to seek to love the Lord with all your heart. That's the first category. Then secondly, Let's move on to money. Everybody good with that? Again, he wants to talk about the attitude toward marriage as well as the attitude toward money. Verse 5, the author exhorts us saying, keep your life free from love of money. Again, in this topsy-turvy world that we live in, it's strange to me that a man has to be commanded to love his wife and then has to be commanded not to love money. Does that seem strange to you? There's something wrong with us as sinners that we have to be commanded to love the things that are good and, and mandated not to do that with those things that are indifferent to us, or ought to be at least. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. The very fact that God has to give us these laws is because we are naturally ungodly and profane. 
the law is meant for us because we find a way to pervert the law. We find a way to pervert it, to debauch it, all the above. Uh, it's because we are tempted, instead of worshiping God, to worship money that we have forfeited so many blessings in, in life. Spiritual blessings of God because we couldn't get our eyes off of what was temporary. Again, there are two extremes in this, just as there are in marriage. Uh, there, uh, in, concerning an attitude toward money, uh, just as if there have been some who have taken vows of celibacy in the church that probably never should have. There, there have been those who have taken vows of poverty in the same way because they could not see how money could be used well in the right context because they ended up lusting after money in the same way they were lusting after sex. They wanted to do away with money altogether. They wanted to get rid of it because they couldn't overcome their own sinful desires, their sinful cravings for it. And so the easiest way for them to do it was just to get rid of it. But that's not the ideal. And it's not the ideal because that's still just, I'm going to avoid the situation. Rather, he wants to change our heart to where we don't love it like we did before. That there is a more powerful affection, a more powerful desire that drives us than the love for the things of this earth. Just avoiding it, it's a step in the right direction, but that's, that's not what God wants. He wants you with your heart to stop loving it, not just to avoid it. It has to begin with the heart, learning to love the Lord above all other things. Of course, again, the majority of those who love money in the Western world are not trying to get rid of money. Uh, rather, we're trying to hoard it. We're trying to accumulate as much of it as we can. And then we're trying to covet what others have that we don't. It's an inordinate desire, again, to have something of this world more than finding our happiness, our security, our belonging in God. In fact, it's got to the point where I think a lot of people identify themselves by their financial worth rather than by God's view of them. Jesus' encounter with the, the rich young ruler should tell us very early on how hard it is, how difficult it is for a man to enter the kingdom of heaven who is rich if he loves his riches. In the same way, we see again early on in, in the book of Mark with the parable of the sower, the kingdom parable of the sower, we see it doesn't take much for the seed that falls on that particular type of ground. The thorns come up because of the cares of this world, the desire, the deceitfulness of riches. The riches deceive you into thinking that they will protect you, that they will help you when in fact they can't. Only God can be that source of comfort. So the, the writer of Hebrews seeks to counter this temptation by exhorting his hearers not to get rid of money, but rather to be content with what you already have. Contentment is the cure for covetousness. It always is. Because money itself isn't the issue, but rather the love of money and the love of what it can buy rather than loving God and what He can do for us. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor a covetous heart always wants something more than what God has provided. Uh, think of it this way. Adam and Eve, their primary sin in the Garden of Eden is actually coveting. They're coveting the one tree that God did not give them. And they lost paradise because they could not be content with what God had given them. The same way, the angels in league with Lucifer himself who fall from grace 
They wanted the position that God had not given them. He had given them everything else, but they wanted one other thing that God had not given them. They craved it, and they were willing to lose heaven for it. doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. It's that craving, that desire to have something that God has not given you that leads to this falling away from God. Um, Philippians 4, chapter uh, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, while still in prison, he says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice Paul's not trying to get rid of money. He's saying there have been times in which he's had an abundance of it. An abundance of worldly goods and, and has really done well with that, but yet he has found contentment in God when he was rich. And then there are other times in which he was in, in dire need, hunger, even starving, and yet he had learned to be content in those circumstances as well. It wasn't the amount of money that he had. It was who did he trust in? What did he look to? for his comfort, and for his strength. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-10, through 10, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we ought to be content. The problem is, as rebellious sinners, we're not content with anything that God has given to us unless we're in a right relationship with Him. We always want something more than what he's given. Not only do we debauch everything and pervert everything, we have a tendency to despise and to be thankless to everything that God has given to us. One of my favorite Puritan paperback books, which happens to be in our library, is a book by Jeremiah Burroughs, famous Puritan pastor. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Excellent book. One of the things that he says in it is this, you worship God more by contentment than when you even come to hear a sermon. You worship Him more in contentment than even when you spend an hour in prayer or when you come to receive the sacrament. These are only external acts of worship, but contentment is the soul's worship. To subject itself to God by being pleased with all that God does. The, the problem, if you think, well, I'm just going to go do some things for God and, and, and then He'll be pleased. No, He's pleased with you when you're pleased with Him. You're pleased with what He does and what He's given you and, and who He is. Contentment in Christ is so much more powerful than just coming here on a Sunday morning. No, I'm not saying don't come now. But when you come, come with contentment in Christ Jesus because He's the one who fills your heart. He's the one who gives you that sense of security and gladness and joy and the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, you've got nothing. The author of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament here in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, when the Lord assures the successor of Moses before they're about to enter into the promised land, he says to him, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never. 
in, in, in the way it's written in the Greek language, in, as it's quoted here in Hebrews, he uses five negative particles in a row in the Greek, which is a very unusual um, uh, configuration. If you, if you were to translate it literally from the Greek to the English, you would read something like this, never not you will I leave, nor never not you will I forsake. Never not you will I ever leave. Uh, you're probably more familiar with how the, uh, the hymnist Philip Doddridge uh, expresses it in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, which we'll be singing at the end today. And it will say this in one of the last um, stanzas. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, so he's resting in Jesus. God says this, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. The reason why he doesn't want us to trust in money is because he wants us to trust in him. To know the faithful love of God, the covenant love of God, to keep us, to help us in time of need. In comparison, listen to how Solomon describes the money that desperate people continually to pursue in vain. Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. He says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist from that. When your eyes light upon it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and flies away like an eagle toward heaven. The very moment that you need money, you desperately need it, it wants to fly away from you. You can't trust it. Why do you think we have it still on the bill today? Probably not for long. In God we trust. Because if you trust in the money, it's going to fly away from you. In comparison... God says, never, no, never, no, never will I leave you or forsake you. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says in verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Why should I fear? What can man do to me? This is where the rubber meets the road. For the original hearers of this message, the Hebrew Christians, again, they're, they're about to face a second round of persecution. Already in the first round, they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. In other words, they had joyfully accepted the, the, the loss of their financial well-being. They had joyfully accepted it. But now he's beginning to wonder whether they would joyfully accept it a second time. And whether or not it would be more like the, the seed that had fallen among the thorns and that they would have that seed choked because they had become overly concerned with the cares of this world. This is the confident assurance that the author of Hebrews has that God is my helper. And again, he, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament in a passage that many of you would recognize if you've been following along with us through the Bible readings each, each, each week, because we were just in it last week. Psalm 118. There the psalmist is giving thanks. It's a great psalm of thanks for how God had answered his prayer in time of great need, in time of persecution even. He says this, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. He is my helper. I shall look in triumph on all those who hate me. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews wants his people to understand because there are people that hate Christians in this very scenario that, they, that he's writing to. He said, what, what do I have to be afraid of what man says to me? God is my helper. He's on my side. It says, as you know, Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, what? Who can be against us? And he, he, he elaborates on that. And, and what if... Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. This was certainly the attitude of, of, of John Chrysostom. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the, in the 5th century. And he was facing banishment by the Byzantine Emperor Arcadius and in light of that banishment, he says this. He says, when driven from the city, I cared very little about it. But I said to myself, if the emperor wishes to banish me, let him banish me. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If he would saw me in sunder, saw me in two, let him saw me in sunder. I have Isaiah for a pattern because Isaiah was sawn in two. If he would plunge me in the sea, I, I remember Jonah. If he would thrust me into the fiery furnace, I remember the three children enduring that. If he would cast me to the wild beast, I'd just call Daniel to mind in the den of the lions. If he would stone me, let him stone me. I have before me Stephen, the martyr, as my guide. If he would take my head from me, let him take it. I have John the Baptist. If he would deprive me of all of my worldly goods, let him do it. For naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. What can man do to me? God is my helper. He will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to hold on to the promises that are given to us here in your word. Lord, help us to believe them. Help us to live by them. Help us not to trust in money, but to trust in you. Lord, help us to receive all the good gifts that you give from your holy hand. Lord, help us to celebrate them, but always to celebrate you more, to love you more as the giver than the gifts. Father, teach us as this new society of, of a holy people that have been called out by the name of Jesus. Lord, help us to give honor to you in our daily lives through these principles and, and many others as, as they're continuing to be fleshed out before us. Lord, help us to love you and to love our neighbors as, we, as ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name.